Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's mutants week after week through their many vaunted titles and more. I'm Nico Action, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and today we have a killer show for you guys. We're going to kick things off with X-Men 19, the most recent issue in Jonathan Hickman's Incredible X series, which was recently announced to be coming to a close before turning our attention over to the finale of, of the Valkyries King and Black tie-in Return of the Valkyries. Now, this first issue, X-Men 19, was a long time building, and it seized the conclusion, possibly maybe sort of, of this first leg of the Children of the Vault saga. It's been an exciting ride, and we've pulled together some of the voices that have covered these characters over the last few months to take a look at this incredible adventure Jonathan Hickman and Mahmoud Asrar gave us surrounding Laura, Everett, and Darwin. Myself, Jonah, Nathan, Drew, and Dante had an incredible time examining not just this crew and this issue, but the sort of inherent value of a three-man team in the X-Men over the years, as well as the more common five-man variant. Now, we hope you guys enjoy this as much as we enjoyed making it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi, this is Dante, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at InfernoMagic. Hi, I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me online at DezlerAOA on Twitter and Instagram, mainly Twitter, sometimes Instagram. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. And we hope you survived this experience, unlike majority of the Tier 3 children, because they just weren't cutting it. They realized, you know what? We're still weak, and we're still losing to mutants, so gotta upgrade. <laughs> well, okay, speaking of upgrades, I love a good five-person room, right? Like, I mean, yeah, I like it more when there's, like, three people and I can shout more or whatever, but, like, I really love a good five-person room because when you think about that sort of, like, the classic dynamic, there's either that four-way dynamic that is the Golden Girls and Designing Women and Will and Grace and Sex in the City and Desperate Housewives ad infinitum right or there's sort of like that five person breakup which is kind of like friends because between the six of them there's probably five personalities and uh like sunny and it's always sunny in philadelphia you need you know that five person power dynamic when you think about it in terms of the x-men it comes up in the original x-men it comes up in the new x-men that sort of five person power dynamic and you know what it comes up in astonishing because i think colossus only has uh, personality so now i mean but that's 10 points to dante because that's one of my favorite Cyclops eras, and I didn't come to reevaluate that era for Cyclops until I made a good friend who was like, no, I love Cyclops, and you're all kind of mean to him. And I'm like, no, we're not, fine, maybe, I'll think about it for like half, oh, we abuse him, don't we? And like, I feel bad, because Cyclops is kind of like our emotional support whipping post. Anyway, so, I bring this all up. Original 5 X-Men, or Morrison's new X-Men. Either way you want to look at it, I would love to get your guys' take on the 5 member X dynamic 
And if you think it works or not, for me, I think the five X-Men dynamic is the ultimate X-Men dynamic. When you've got four people, it winds up not expressing kind of like the variance of mutant abilities very well. I feel like there's always, oh, you know, an elemental is missing or a super physical person is missing. But like five, you get a balance of powers, you get a balance of personalities. And I think we're seeing that more and more where even when the cast is pretty big on a modern book, they tend to focus on four to five characters. How do you guys feel about that magic number five as it pervades x-men titles i agree i like five is the magical number i really do think so like the oh five they all got a chance to shine they all had their own like unique little like set that they could go into nobody was really like wallpaper like nobody was really like set dressing and um, everybody got really that chance to evolve and grow yeah, and you know, even thinking about evolving and growing, think about the covers to Hox Pox, that brilliant Hox cover that House of X number one was five X-Men. It was the polycule and the old gay couple. So it was again the five X-Men. Does anybody else think that there's this magic in X fives, or do you all think that I'm just absolutely crazy? Well, I think that you hit the the key word because in this new era of Krakoa and mutant magic, five is the the new, you know, it number. Um, you know, seeing seeing the synergy that happens between mutants and their powers, we have the five with resurrections. We have what's happening in Excalibur, um, and I feel like we're really leaning into that five, that magic number. I think a five can work, but I think they all need to be distinct enough and have a certain synergistic counterpoint of characteristics to be able to work well. I think the original five captures that, but in my opinion. Actually, no, let's say I don't like a lot of the original five, but I like three of the members and two of them I don't particularly care for. And maybe if they were written differently, I can care for them more. But having, I think it's really important to have everybody be able to bounce off one another. And I don't know if the original five still does that today or if it holds up because I feel like oftentimes people were paired off you have bobby and angel you got scott and gene and you just got hank who's doing weird science experiments in the back now drew i know that your interactions with the x-men you've like carefully cultivated your museum of x in your head right so how do you feel have you come across that iteration of five as a power number or are you like five by five nah i could take or leave it I mean, I've never really thought about it until, I guess, now. Yeah, I guess, you, like, like we were saying before with the whole um, resurrection and stuff, it's kind of interesting. But even, you know, you have a point also with um, with the teams itself. I think, like, if you have, like, a team of two, um, you're really only relying on, like, a two-character development. You know, they're just bouncing off each other. Whereas if you grow the team more to, like, five, you can have different characters interact with each other and, um, and do all that kind of, you know cool literature stuff so i talked extensively about the magic of the number five just so that i could immediately drop it down to the number three so the thing about three in x-men right like to talk about the numerology of x especially because we're living in a magical time we just had ten of swords my whole thing about how the greatest contribution that grant morrison was ever kind enough to gift the x universe is it was weapon 10 not weapon x you know weapon pluses we just did a whole fucking 45 minute special on how how great fucking weapon plucks is to this 
day. So clearly, we're fans here. But when I think about the dynamic of three in terms of the X-Men, a couple of magic units come to mind. Number one, I go to the Polycule. Obviously, we all sort of have that relationship with the main three. Whether you love it or you hate it, whether you think it's amazing or you think it's absolutely terrible. There is something about threes in X-Men that frequently presents itself, whether it's a love triangle or it's a familial dynamic. If you think about it, even the third Summer's brother, the quest for this unknown other, sort of represents a magical trinity. If you look at Alan Davis's Excalibur, the idea of the magical trinity is a defining component of the idea of Phoenix, Merlin, and Necron, the anti-Phoenix. So I bring all of this up because this sort of idea of the trio, the troika, the the trinity of the future of mutancy was wrapped in this crash for however long they were there. And one of the things that was so important was you understood their personalities before they went in, right? You had to have a sense of who they were or this issue didn't work. Thinking about that, these rules of three in the X-Men tend to be very severe. I even kind of put Magneto, Xavier, and Moira on that pedestal. Does anybody else have a trilogy or a trinity in the X-Men that kind of stands out to you? Whether it's something like Rogue Destiny and Mystique, or it's my precious Logan Jean Cyclops? Uh, For me, like, I I would have to say my, like, trifecta would be Danny, Shan, and Rain, because, like, they all play off each other so well that you've got Danny, who's the outgoing one, you've got Rain, who's the really, like, shy, reserved one, and you've got Shan, who's just kind of, like, the common sense one. She's like, no, ladies, we got to do this. Going back to what you were saying, like, well, back to the numerology part of it, if you wanted to talk about fives and threes, the Stepford Cuckoos, I think, would be the best example of that. Who started? They started out as five and then went down to three, and now they're back to five again. So, Dante, you know, you have a really unique position in this, because I don't know that any character is more defined by his rule of three than perhaps Cyclops is, for my money. I think Cyclops is in many ways a character who finds himself in trios a lot. How do you feel about trios in general? And I would love to get your opinion on, you know, O1I himself. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's so interesting when you put it that way, because I was just thinking about that. And I was like, well, what trio? I mean, I, I was like, something has to include Cyclops for me. But then I was like, well, what what trio would I really be looking at? Because you're right, he's kind of been in that situation often. You know, right now, we you know, we would probably say one of the more uh, relevant ones would be him, Gene, and Wolverine. But I mean, there was also that time when it was uh, there, there was kind of that love triangle between him, Gene, and Emma. Ooh, or the flirting between him, Gene, and Psy- uh, Psylocke. Or Psylocke, yep. That was another great moment. Dazzler for two seconds in the Dark <laughs> Phoenix Saga. Damn. I mean, like, I gotta say this about him. If nothing else, Cyclops must be magnificent in bed by this point <laughs> because of the number of incredible women that have chosen to spend their time with him. He must know something by now because I imagine that there can be no way that sex with Emma Frost is anything less than chef's kiss. But there's also, I kind of get like this thing with like Cyclops, Gene, and Storm as more of like a friend unit, like leader friend unit in the X-Men as well. Ooh. They've all led color teams. I really agree with that. One that I don't know if we will see in any time in the near future, but I know has its 
big mainstay, not only in the comics, but in the hearts of fans of Deadpool, Cable, and Domino. Yeah, you know, there really is something to be said about the complex nature of that relationship. When you kind of take a step back and you examine the introduction of Deadpool involving having a shapeshifter stand in for Domino to trick Cable. So Cable was physically intimate with this woman at Deadpool's command. Deadpool, who was her boyfriend at the time, while he kept Domino proper, naked, chained up in a basement. Like, when you think about the origins of these characters, there's a lot more sinister to it, which actually adds, for many people, that element of sexuality. I mean, Luke and Laura, General Hospital, you know what I'm saying? So, man, that reference clunked. So... I want to finally get our footing into the vault and take a look at X-Men number 19 by the breathtaking team of Jonathan Hickman as writer and head of X, Mahmoud Asrar as the artist, Mahmoud Asrar who has been killing it on X-Men books since at least Wolverine and the X-Men Volume 2 by Jason Latour, a pretty interesting follow-up to Wolverine and the X-Men proper by Jason Aaron. And then it would be impossible to discuss this issue without taking like a half an hour to Thank Sonny Go for all of the incredible color work throughout this story. The story picks up hot on the heels of X-Men 18, where our amazing trilogy, whoa, I keep doing that, where our amazing trinity of X-Men, Skin, Darwin, whoa, Sink, Dar, I'm like having a moment, guys. That was me. I did that to you yesterday. I was like, what? Oh, shoot. Where Sink, Darwin, and Wolverine, and I don't need to say which one it is because she's the Wolverine, all head into the vault to find out a little bit more about the vault plans and what the children of the vault are intending for Earth. Now, we kind of knew this was going to be a long payout, and we knew that when they went in issue 5, it would be a quick cleanup. 14 issues later, a giant crossover later, the first thing I want to do is get everybody's initial read on this issue. I was very positive on it. I loved what we got. I was surprised that it read a little bit more like an issue of 30-something than an issue of X-Men in a lot of ways, but I have no complaints because it was a little bit China Beach, too. What did you guys think? I freaking loved this issue. It was probably one of my favorite issues since the beginning, like since X-Men 1. Um, I think that in order for this issue to, to work, it needed, like, it definitely needed to be a year later. I'm kind of one of the people who thinks it, I like, I think it could have been longer, actually. And then another thing is that this issue, I think, was for me at least, emotionally exhausting because of just, like, all of the shit that they, like, went through and everything. Um, and it just, like, I just feel that, like, whenever you, people on, on Twitter and in the talks ask, like, what people's favorite, um, like, uh, what people's favorite titles are, and for me, it's definitely X-Men because of Jonathan Hickman and, like, the work he's doing. I just, like, literally cannot get enough of what he's putting in place. I'm right there with you. I was really positive on this issue because it was so interesting. And I remember when the when they first went into the vault and there was so much conjecture over, well, what does this mean? What are they going to do? What's happening in there? And we didn't touch it for a very long time. So I imagine many people might have forgotten about it, that that was a plot point at one point. So I was really excited to be able to see and be like, okay, we're finally getting to the story. 
story. I'm ready for it. And it was a really interesting and fascinating story uh, from both perspectives of the X team trapped in this weird time dimension, gathering recon information, but also looking at a perspective from the vault and the children of the vault and their purpose and their role and what they were defined to do. And it's such an interesting contrast to the X-Men and mutants in general that I was really enamored with the world building of these two issues. Oh my gosh, for me, this evoked a feeling of uh, that we haven't seen since Hoxbox, more particularly Powers of X, because of the more sci-fi elements but we've got we've got everything we like in this one issue that we got there we've got timelines we've got uh solid use of data pages we have some really big sci-fi elements that like just epic and grandiose and it tells a really emotional story especially between the two focus characters that you know kind of darwin kind of got kicked away but between sink and laura this issue for me was stellar. I'm a huge Generation X Volume 1 fan. Uh, those characters super special to me. So getting to see Sync in the spotlight, getting like getting his narration with two other great characters that I love, I thought it was just fantastic. The, the way that Jonathan Hickman was able to tell such a full lengthy story in a small amount of space just absolutely delighted me to no end. I mean, I felt like we were reading years and years of story, you know, and just it was so well conveyed. I got it. I was invested. I was right there with them till the very end so for me top notch i i definitely found myself clapping my hands like i was totally invested and the thing about this issue that really worked the most for me there was like no actual fight scenes sure there were fight sequences but the fight sequences were sort of the underlier that supported the emotional narrative in a lot of ways this reminded me immensely of an episode of the magicians now i don't know how many of you are big magicians fans i mean everybody should be and your favorite should always be julia but this is neither here nor there there's an episode where two characters have a sort of artificial life together and the time compression on it is incredibly gripping and i kind of don't do time compression stories very much i find myself very hand wave oh great this thing kind of didn't happen but it did till everybody forgets it right i don't doesn't do it for me. but this issue focused on the emotional beats in the panel work but the dramatic beats in the narrative timeline telling and i think that was one of the hidden strengths of this issue the art sought explicitly to create character instead of going with somebody who's famous for widescreen explosions they went with somebody who was capable of communicating emotional intensity with atmosphere you know mahmoud asrar is an artist who draws from the world around him in a way that i feel translates emotion on the page do you guys feel that this artist who has you know done x-men books before and even a number of the issues in a recent uh, in our recent run actually he did i believe x-men 14 most recently do you guys feel that mahmoud asrar's art enhanced the story here maybe over some of the other recent storytellers on this arc 
Yeah, I definitely do. There are like some parts in this issue where, like you were saying, it is kind of focused on like character. The like again, the backgrounds are almost nothing, and it's basically just the characters that you need to be like focusing on in their expressions, which I think for this issue is like really important with what you were saying, Nico. And I feel like some other artists, you know, that have been on the series have made it kind of wishy washy, and you know. Oh gosh, no, I definitely agree. It's like. Like, just the whole, like, they were able to, like, combine body horror with, like, you know, the regeneration charts, with sci-fi, with really, really strong, in like, expressions and really, really strong caring, especially between uh, Sink and Laura. Like, just everything focused on the characters. And I love the fact that it didn't have to focus on huge explosions. It was really a good character piece. Dante, you know, I actually don't know your thoughts on Laura in general, right? How did you feel about, as somebody who's a big fan of Classic Generation X, so, you know, Bacalo, who is famous for design over Let's Go With Legibility, right? How did you feel about both this iteration of Sync and, in general, how do you feel about Laura as Wolverine? I really enjoyed the art in this book. Absolutely. Laura, I'm a big fan. Best Wolverine. She just just is killer. In, Last uh, Wolverine, in both... best Wolverine. <laughs> yes, yeah. I love the art in this because I think that, that it really does capture that sci-fi feel. And the most amazing thing in this book is that we get to see progression of several different characters. Uh, and we see them a- aging or changing, evolving, adapting. And I and I love the way that the art makes that feel real. Like we we can see that transition. We can feel the direction that the characters are moving in. There's a grittiness to it that really kind of fits the you know survive or die atmosphere that the trio are stuck in. So for me, I I thought this was great. And I you know I love seeing Everett kind of getting all like grizzled and beardy and you know, kind of have to fan myself a little bit. That was hot. (laughs) Oh, it definitely was. So one thing I also wanted to add, um, I don't know what cover you guys got, but I got the Jen Bartel Women's History Month variant. And I just wanted to like give her a a shout out because not only this, the variant for this issue, but all of her um, Women's History Month variants I thought were amazing. Oh yeah, it made me buy two, two copies because that cover is amazing. Now, actually, Drew, that's an amazing segue to something I wanted to talk about. A few episodes ago, Drew, you and I were fortunate enough to get to talk about X-Men number 18, and we discussed the transformation of Serafina visually as she sort of transformed color to show advancement and evolution, and it transformed the world around her. And that led us to discussing how, outside of some pretty identifiable iconography, a number of these characters are actually a little difficult to tie to a personality. Now, I'll be very honest, I didn't get any more personality from the Children of the Vault in this issue. I don't think I learned a fucking thing. But I do think I understand them as a unit better. And I do think some of that came through in the evolution of art. As somebody who gave us your opinion on the initial evolution of Serafina's design, how did you feel about this further evolution of her design into this more jocasta looking motherfucker and then i want to know how the rest of you feel about that as well this evolution of their design and the idea of the children 
Yeah, I was thinking about that the entire time as I was like, when I saw that that uh, page in particular, I was thinking about that conversation that we had. I definitely like I everybody here all knows I love a good costume moment. And there are several good costume moments in this um, book. Yeah, because I was saying like they are currently in their second uh phase and then now her seraphina look is all she's like all bald and silver which is kind of cool because it's the like combination of she was like a gray and then black you know silver and even like fuego he looks cool and yeah they all i think they all kind of like level up with their um new designs you know i was actually thinking the phrase like yeah they kind of did like they went from the basic weapon to the gritty looking weapon to the more powerful regal weapon yeah no totally they level Mm -hmm. up yeah all of you (laughs) i am all for the jocasta looking seraphina Uh, that looks rocks like and then so the blonde girl oh my god i forgot her name like i love how her hair just evolves with her costume (laughs) like I really enjoyed the the evolution of their designs. I thought they were really interesting. One of them looked like Summoner, and I'm not over Summoner, so let's. <laughs> uh, but blonde, blonde one. She was my favorite. Most blonde one, yes, that's her superhero name. Blonde, blonde one, one. Blonde one who shoots laser things from her fingers, and only because she, I think she was the only one that like actually had hair. Everybody else like either lost their hair. They didn't have too much of it. Her entire costume evolution was specifically about her hair. Lazo Fingy Blondo. Yeah, that's also, her name. Um, the child they stole the information from, the one that had knew everything about the city, looked like Charles to me. Like, that was a Charles helmet. That, so that, are you trying to say that even for the children of the vault... You think Charles is in charge of their <laughs> two month days and their two month nights? Uh no, the Madre is. Fine. Um Charles is not in charge here. Um and I Carlos and Carga. I would, I would pull a I would pull a Logan and I would call him Chuck because I know that would make him upset. And I, if there's anything you know about me, it's that I don't think Charles deserves any respect at points. Right now, yes. But some points, hmm. Excellent. Um, I feel like the evolution of the the children of the vault makes so much sense because, I mean, one, that's how they were introduced as like this expediated evolution of people uh, to, to surpass mutants. And um, I, I feel like it's a newer element that these characters essentially become regrown and evolve. Like, I, I don't remember that initially when they were introduced. Uh, but it, it makes so much sense that we should see them changing. We should not see the same character designs when they were first introduced. We should see them constantly changing and evolving and adapting because that's what makes them such a huge threat to the mutants. So I, I love the progression. I don't necessarily love all of the designs, but I love that it's happening. I love that they are changing and evolving. So speaking of changing and evolving, the X-Men franchise has been changing and evolving at a rapid pace. And something that's really stuck out in my my mind is the way this frames X of Swords. Now, Ten of Swords began at like X-Men 9, 10, you know what I mean? Like you kind of got to keep making noises at it, but it also kind of began an X-Men 2, right? So for this to have been an X-Men 5 and then 18, 19, with all of the Shi'ar stuff in the middle, one of the things that strikes me so odd about that is the way that these issues 
had kind of a sense of you knew the good guys were going to win. There's no way that Laura and Darwin and Everett, there's just sort of no way that we could have imagined them losing in such a unique situation where they, they were the only hope. But that was one of the defining factors of Ten of Swords, this lack of hope. If you die here, you don't make it back. It's so interesting that immediately after Ten of Swords, and in some ways immediately before it, we're talking about alternate universe world kind of situations kind of again, right? How do you guys feel that we kind of, I mean, I don't know about you, maybe you guys didn't have the same, I know they're going to be okay, even if they don't remember everything, I know these three are going to come back to us. How do you guys feel about that sort of dichotomy in a limitlessly magical world in terms of Ten of Swords? The potentiality for permanent death was more immense, but here in the Children of the Vault, in this microcosmic experience, in this microcosmic experience defined by time, there was a sort of sense of impermanence to death, and kind of a sense that they would survive no matter what. How do you guys feel about that sort of sense of alternate worlds and alternate time, the impermanence and permanence of death? Well, I want to bring up something that happened over in X Factor in that when the Morrigan was murdering everybody in the X Factor house in the graveyard, the uh, prodigy was talking about the chances of you, your backup being uploaded at that exact moment was astronomically small. And he was worried that if he died without being backed up, they wouldn't have any knowledge to defeat the Morrigan. And that was something that was going through my head because there was a lot of questions that brings it about. In one of the... Uh, sidebar uh, infos they it was revealed that they couldn't message the outside while they were inside the vault so i was thinking well are their consciousness being uploaded right now can they be uploaded it's a really scary situation in that if they did die and they were lost would they have any way of getting that information that they learned at any point and i think they got extremely lucky in that they were backed up at the right moment but if they weren't it's a huge not only loss of time but they've just created probably their own demise in the tier four children like nico i kind of like was like okay they're gonna find a way to get through they're gonna find a way to get this information to them but i assumed it was gonna be laura i assumed she was gonna be the one who was making through i love that it was everett like and that he was able to be the one to save to, to save the day so speaking by getting the information to the rest of them um, I, I loved that it was able to give him that personality and it was able to develop his character because we haven't seen him, obviously, really since he died in Generation X, which was so sad. We really haven't seen his growth and this, this kind of jump-started his growth and allowed him to develop a personality that wasn't there before or expand on the personality he had already. See, my thinking behind it was that necessarily they, like, we didn't really know if, like, if they died there or something happened to them in the vault, if they would, like, how would they come out? Like, we know with other worlds, Ooh. it doesn't come out good. And then, but on Araco, it comes out good. So, like, what would the result be for inside the vault, which is like this totally bizarro world place? Well, my thinking along those same lines, you know, it did seem like they were very much cut off from the rest of the X-Men and Cerebro. So no backups. They were on their own to survive and make it out. And I don't know that I really had that sense of hope, honestly. There, you know, at one point it seemed so dire. I I actually kind of expected the story to be uh, more of them being captured and kept by the children and maybe incorporated into the children. Uh, uh, kind of like what happened with Darwin specifically, but maybe 
maybe, um, you know, maybe it, it's Everett telling us the story, but I was worried that Everett was going to come out on the other side as an enemy at the end, <laughs> you know, and that last minute save for Everett was, yeah, it was amazing timing. Uh, the thing that like, I think that makes the story work so well is that we got this beautiful life together and now only he knows it. He only remembers that Laura didn't get backed up. She didn't make it as far as I understood. So for, for Darwin and Laura, they're just like, oh, we didn't even go into the vault. We're reset to where we were before we left. And Everett is the only one that is stuck with, you know, a lifetime of memories with these other two people. So there was one weird thing that I didn't quite understand. So like when Sink makes it out of the vault itself and when he's underneath it, like how he didn't get backed up at that time too. Like I'm kind of like, hmm, kind of wondering about it. And he, he was there for like a whole week, right? So he came back a century later. So I was like, hmm, I guess there was no Cerebro access under there. I believe he was still in the vault, but he was not in the city of the vault. And I believe the city is where the time dilation field begins. Like, I believe it's that time is funny inside the vault, and then there's the city further inside the vault. And he was out of the city, but still in the vault. Okay, okay. And I think that's how he didn't quite make it back out. You know what I mean? So I think one of the things that I find so true to the X-Men is that there is very little the X-Men love more than partnering any Wolverine character with someone way too powerful. I don't know what it is about Harry Bear dudes and Laura <laughs> where we're like that person. They can only have sex with someone with too many powers. But that does seem to be the theme here, right? Whether it's Sabretooth and Monet, I don't ever want to fucking talk about it. <laughs> or it's Gene and Logan, or it's Logan and Storm, or it's Logan and Mystique, Jesus Christ, or it's Dokken and Aurora. But there's this overwhelming sense of, you know, the misanthrope lycanthrope needs to be somehow partnered with the super almighty. And I think part of that is because the mentality of an Arene character, right? If you're going to be one of the Wolverines, you have to be kind of broken mentally in a unique way. Everett stands a really special place in X-Men history. He kind of got Uncle Ben. He seemed to be really dead when he was dead. And it's only in this era that he gets to come back. How do you guys feel about the potentiality of Sync with Laura? And do you guys feel that plays into this sort of overarching, you gotta put the Wolverine with the way too powerful character? You know, in all honesty, I almost feel like their relationship is only going to live inside the story because I, I really did read it as only Sync got backed up as soon as he got out those doors and Laura doesn't have any of those memories. So it would be very one-sided. They don't have that shared experience. They don't have, you know, the the structure of being stuck together essentially to, you know, prompt the their relationship. So I don't know that I even would want to see it explored because, again, I feel like it'd be so one-sided at this point. See, and I kind of read it as like at the end, he was like, oh, I'm going to go and try and make this happen. I'm going to put the smoochy moves on Laura. <laughs> and I, so, like, I, I thought um, Xavier blasted the memories into her. But I don't There's think that... I don't he, think she he, got all of them. He didn't have them. Yeah. She, he, yeah. There was He didn't have access to them. So once they were in the vault, they couldn't have access. Like they had nothing. So I think he was blasting her pre-vault brains back into her post-vault body. 
Well, well, oh, what I meant by that is I thought that Xavier blasted the memories of what went on through the through the memories that Sync gave. Oh, because so Sync was the only oh. one that was backed up. So Laura and Darwin would have all the information that they learned because of Sync. That's what I read it as. I think X Factor showed us like they back you up and then if they have to add those extra memories in, they have to do it as a separate telepathic thing. Ooh, so we're like talking some levels of psychic surgery here. Okay, okay, okay. I'm about it. Now, Drew, I wonder, how do you feel about the potentiality of Sync and Wolverine, who I'm going to come up with their couple name now, and it's either, I Sync guess... For, Sync of Sync-Vereen. It's got to be Sync-Vereen, <laughs> oh, no. because the other version is Wonk. <laughs> no, Wonk is better. Wonk. Wonk. <laughs> um, to be honest, like I, I, I liked it in the context of just this story. I don't think I like it overall in the context of x-men itself i like the idea of it like more than actually like the relationship it kind of reminds me now of it it's going to be a little bit like frenzy kind of like lusting after cyclops after age of x but like if you think about it like if their if sync uses his powers to sync up with her they could have some like hot like judzia wharf style sex like really like we're out there breaking bones but maybe that's just me no i'm into it i'm into it that's absolutely i mean and if i can that's absolutely the Curzon in her. That's I, anyway. So, oh yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Absolutely. If Curzon could have imagined Curzon having really awesome hot gay sex with a Klingon in a hundred years, I I don't think it would have changed a fucking thing about him. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> a little Deep Space Nine for you there. Um, gonna edit that down. So <laughs> gonna, go, gonna go deep in those Space Nines. Right. Oh. Okay, so we've hit just about everything, so I want to open the floor to uh, additional thoughts and, uh, you know, roll it. I I would say I can't get over the fact, I can't get over the visual of Everett as an older man. That was oh so fucking hot like it was super i was wealthy. like yeah and laura's outfit like with the silver streak in her hair and like like the proper rips in all the right places i was like oh my god darwin's look too and like that panel too like on page um what is it 14 of digital like just the three of them all together they looked so amazing and i was like okay yeah i want to get with every one of them and there was a certain elegant subtlety to how the nudity never felt sexual. Oh, absolutely, especially when they especially when they escaped the vault and you know they're they're completely nude and hairless, but like it definitely wasn't over sexualized at all. If yeah, anything, one, it was it, under sexualized. Yeah, in that panel oh, yeah. in that panel where uh, Wolverine's like fighting off all the children particularly. Like I found that one to be like very war- more like warrior than like sexualized. Keep hitting me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I really loved this issue. Um, it kind of, like I said at the beginning, it hit everything I like about the series, like the mystery aspect of it, um, the year long payoff. And I think the pacing of it was really good. Um, and I, like, you can just tell, like, the, obviously the vault isn't over, you know, it's coming back later. Um, we just have the trio back. 
Another thing, I'm so glad that Everett's getting a spotlight again, because let me tell you, like, growing up, like, I grew up in St. Louis, so, like, he's from St. Louis, too, so, like, whenever in Generation X they would visit his hometown, I was like, this is so cool, seeing, like, the streets they would draw, I was like, I kind of know exactly where they're doing on that street, so just having, like, a hometown hero for me, like, get the spotlight again is magical and amazing, and I love it. I think what I loved the most, um, I may have already said this, but yeah, I'm a huge uh, Everett fan. Uh, Sink is just amazing. And he went from being like just this really good guy to being kind of a badass. And with him retaining all of that, uh, all the memories of his time in the vault, I feel like maybe he might be positioned to, uh, I don't know, join a new X-Men team. Uh, at least I'm really hoping. <laughs> yes, please. That's what I Oh I'm my God, please. Too. I, like I feel like after this this issue, how can he not be on the X Men? Like I I might be kind of pissed if he's not. Please him and Laura. Like I kind of want to see them like get the spotlight again. Oh. So I so glad you brought up Laura because I recently read through I'd read parts of it and I'd finally read through all of Tom Taylor's All New Wolverine, which is just upper echelon peak. Exactly why you do a solo book about a character, right? Instead of saying we have to fulfill a Wolverine title being on the shelves, they said we have to make a Wolverine title on the shelves fulfilling, and it was really a powerful thing. Except the last arc. I don't love time jumps. That's not my thing, right? I would rather get there. I'm about that journey, right? So the final arc of All New Wolverine by Tom Taylor, which was really masterful, even that arc that I don't care for, the final arc, I just don't care for because I don't care for the, the kind of type of arc it is. But so the last thing I just read with Laura involved her artificially aging really quickly and her and a team of people having to lay siege to a city that they have to break into in order to protect the world from a different superpowered menace. Like, I'm not saying that it's too identical uh, because I, they're totally different creatures, but I think that kind of stands to the test of what Hickman's trying to do. Hickman is creating a best of the X-Men. He's going back in and he's getting mutants that never got a fair chance, and he's even getting mutants who recently had some expert stories, and maybe he He's thematically borrowing those elements. But you know what? Cool. If we're going to have an X-Man that constantly artificially ages, let it be Laura. So, you know, anything to anything to keep Gambit out of another fucking title. So <laughs> I've just decided I can't stand him anymore. So like, that's hey, it. Hey, hey, you leave my sketchy Cajun alone, okay? No, like, no. He is I say, like I say, I say. Always, yes, he, that's exactly correct. He sounds like Foghorn Leghorn. He <laughs> has always looked like Cyclops, but not as cool. No, I will not have Whoa, him. whoa, this is Gambit Slander, and I will not take it. Oh I, my god, we're going to have to fight now, Nico. His coat, what about his coat? His coat is that. awesome, but John Constantine wore it first and better. Next thing. Whoa. Can I, I, disagree. Can I pose a question? The half cowl. Yes, go ahead. Um, so uh, earlier on, we talked about uh, quad, you know, five man teams and triplets. If we had to make this into a five man team, and you know, this has to be in the context of they can survive in the vault or have abilities that allow them to, you know, copy the other mutants. Would there anyone else you would want to see add to this dynamic of this trio? I think uh, Mimic would have been interesting to add to this. Mm. Especially because he's not technically a mutant. I love that. Uh, you know, that's such a great question. And 
I think my answer, I, I love these three. I would probably keep these three pretty cemented. But if I could add two people, I would probably want to add somebody who's famous for having the ability to telepathically and telekinetically reshape themselves. So somebody like a Rachel or a Betsy whose telepathic telekinetic prowess allows them to like reconstitute their body or turn themselves into a dinosaur, whatever, you know, I, I like giving that in there. And then also I would go with somebody like Storm or Magneto who can tie into the, you know, brunt power of the earth itself. I would imagine, especially having seen Storm have different power reactions in space, I would imagine that Storm might have some different reactions inside the vault. And so I would say these three plus an overpowered scion that isn't Gene because no and Magneto or Storm your pick. Okay, I'm going to go with like Emma because she can survive in her diamond form for like forever as we've seen in that future Captain Marvel arc and Iceman because I think in his ice form he could like live forever. Ooh, that's a great call. I'm going with the best of both of yours. Nico, I like yours, but I want Emma Frost in there. Yes. Yeah, I don't think she actually needs... I think we're specifically told she does not need to eat or breathe in diamond yeah, form. Right, but she can't use her telepathy, so... Yeah. That's, I don't yeah. know, yeah, give her a thousand indestructible. years... Yeah, give her a thousand years of indestructibility inside of the vault. I bet she finds a fucking way. She's Emma fucking... <laughs> She would yeah. too. Yes, that would be a good. Power She'll just upgrade. like not transform her fucking uh, hair and fingernails and shift all of her psionic power into those. And she's ah! going to be like, "Bitch, it was ah, always going to be the excuse." You, she would do it in her nose job. Oh, because I would live. I would survive for forever. Yes. Okay, Dante. I need you to. I need you to weigh in. I would say for most people, that would be impossible. But for my fucking queen Emma. Bitch, she can get it done. Hey everybody, and welcome back one last time. Now in this next segment, Nathan, Kyle, and Maddie do an incredible job examining the final part of Jason Aaron's Return to the Valkyries in the form of King in Black, Return of the Valkyries. This series went out of its way to make sure that the long-forgotten Valkyries of the past got front and center stage, as well as some amazing new characters. This has been an exciting time, and like I say in this segment, if you're a fan of Jason Aaron, you'll probably enjoy this run, and you might even appreciate a number of the X-Men appearances that pop up along the way. Now, as always, guys, we love making this show for you, dropping two episodes a week every Tuesday and Friday, but if that's not enough for you, we release content constantly over on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon. So don't forget to check out those three avenues where you can follow us at X's for Podcast. Don't forget to drop us a review over on Apple if you like what you hear, and subscribe to the show to make sure you get every new episode. That YouTube contains a number of amazing videos, whether it's more content from the group as a team, or it's content from each of us individually, and we hope you guys will check it out. Until next time, guys, keep those mutant lights Lit those Krakoan gateways open. Enjoy this last segment, and we'll see you on the other side. Hey, everybody, we have an extra special issue that we are covering today for Exes for Podcast. I am Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, guys, it's Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at The Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. And I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drancis82. So today we are covering one of my favorite miniseries this year, the last issue of The Return of the Valkyries. So before 
before we get into anything, I really want to talk a little bit about the cr amazing creative team on this miniseries. So it was written by Torin Gronbeck and Jason Aaron. So they have a lot of history with Jane Foster. They wrote the 10-issue Valkyrie series together. So on art, we have the GLAD-nominated Nina Vakeva on inks, the amazing Tamara Bond villain on colors, and VC's Joe Cabino on letters. So this issue, this miniseries actually has been really fun and amazing for me. I don't know. I'm a big Danny Moonstar fan, so maybe that's just why it's been my jam. But before we start digging into the events of this issue, what has been your favorite moment of the previous issues in the series? So we've had a lot of fun and interesting moments. So starting with uh, Sentry's soul being stolen, uh, we've had some really fun moments with Jane's horse bonding with our unnamed Valkyrie, the amazing fight between Hildegard and the nullified storm, and my personal favorite was the reunion between Danny Moonstar and Brightwind, who, honestly, in my opinion, are more soulmates than Kate and Lachie. So what has your, been your guys' favorite moment? Young Hildegard's uh, little backstory. Yes. Oh, absolutely adorable. And the fact that she was able to take out a, what was it, a dragon? Um, Well, she didn't take it out. I mean, she had to defeat it, but I don't think she killed it. Well, and like the Asgardian stories, right? They're like Klingon. So yeah. They're going to tell these really long tales. Yeah. So like in her version of the story, she totally killed that dragon. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. How about you, Maddie? Oh, I suppose me. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I I would say, um, you know, I, I I genuinely think, and there, there have been tremendous moments with this entire run, but I think seeing all the Valkyries come together this issue in issue four was really, was really it for me. And in a, in a way, I think it's because I, I hadn't realized how much of a dearth of female-led books there have been of late and particularly to see so many women and so many powerful women share you know page space or panel space uh was was really beautiful but i also just think that nina vakeva does uh such an incredible job on on the nuances of their character and really just delivers like bold dynamism in in every stroke oh absolutely agree because like just like each character has its own distinct look and like you, you'd think it'd be hard to do when they're all these Norse dressed up Valkyrie women, but everybody has a distinct look, a distinct style, and even within that world of that Asgardian fashion. After a brief set of page, we see that Brunhilde has moved the unmovable. She's gotten Ivanir to endorse her plan to aid the living and rallies the Bahalan Valkyries around her. Was this a surprise to any of you guys, or was this always the foregone conclusion to this? I kind of figured that it was going to happen. They wouldn't have introduced them to just turn around and say, oh no, we're just going to sit here in Valhalla and, and do nothing. Especially with this dead celestial absorbing all the souls and preventing any additional uh, warriors from reaching Valhalla. Ah, I absolutely agree. What about you? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have to agree. I definitely think that it was a foregone conclusion that this was going to be how, how everything transpired. I, you know, admittedly, I I haven't been able to predict uh, a thing uh, coming in this book. And a lot of it is because, and you know, don't hate me, uh, it took me several issues to figure out who was who, um, <laughs> just by the face. Uh, Nina Vakeba, again, does such a great job differentiating the characters. But as somebody who has very limited exposure to Valkyries, to any of the Thor mythos, to, to most of these characters, save for, you know it's bad when Sentry is the character that I was like, I know this guy. Um, 
it, it's century. You know, you, you don't get more. And and granted, he's he's powerful as, as all get out, but you don't get more like B list in in like name recognition than century, in my opinion. And I think that. Like it took me a long time to be like, okay, no, no, no. Look at look at look at this one. This is Jane. Okay. You know who Danny Moonstar is. So in that way, I've just kind of been letting it wash over me. I I think it's been an incredible run. I'm excited to read it uh again in its in its entirety and really like piece it together. But this has been, admittedly, uh, a workbook for me. Okay. In that so... I read it for work. <laughs> So, uh, me being that that leads me to a follow up question. Um, so, me being obviously the more versed in Valkyrie, just because I love that whole mythos of Danny Moonstar. I'm not so much a Thor guy, but like just like Valkyrie, Danny Moonstar, and Brunhilda, I, I love all those characters. So, Maddie, did this miniseries give you more of an appreciation of besides Danny Moonstar, who you're already more familiar with? Did it give you more of an appreciation of the characters in general and in a whole? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Jane Foster, Brunhilda. Uh, the unnamed Valkyrie, uh, everybody, everybody really, you know, shined or shone, um, you know, for, for all of their panel time. Like I definitely, I wouldn't have changed anything. I, I definitely think it's been, uh, a, if nothing else, a very visually engaging story. I, yeah, no, I, I really, I, I liked it. I just, Am, am a slow learner so i've just been reading it back and being like okay no no no, you know what happened okay and this is where okay yep yep no 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 i totally get that it, it, it's a lot to to soak in right like if you're if you're not familiar with any of the mythos at all it, it's a lot to absorb at the same time back in the realm between jane and danny are fighting a battle that is not going well jane leaves danny to try to complete the ritual while she gallantly takes on the headless celestial wow the headless celestial all looks doomed until the nameless Valkyrie arrives and helps to buy time until the undead Valkyries can arrive. Even so, Jane is sucked into the void and is confronted with the memories of her deceased son, Jimmy. Um, to me, I hadn't seen as much about her dead son so this was you know i'd read about it but just seeing those few panels of it it was really amazing and heartfelt and heart-hugging really poignant to me what were your guys' reactions yeah i i definitely agree with with how you feel about that i really haven't gotten a chance to go back to read uh a lot of jane's history i've been meaning to do that for a while now this this piece of her story was just so emotional and it was almost like she was working it, it felt like she was working through all this pain that she had had over the last few years and it's finally starting to work itself to uh the pain to completion mm -hmm. so it, it's definitely making me interested in going back and reading more of, of her stuff so that i can really understand what's going on with her yeah i definitely would say that that jason and Aaron and Tom Grimbeck did an excellent job in communicating grief through that through that scene through that exchange and it was it was if nothing else complimented uh, tremendously by the art you can just see the way that she looks at Jimmy or who she perceives to be Jimmy and and you know like a, a, a reader like I am who did not know that she had in canon uh, a son who died at eight years old you know immediately that maternal connection was there so it was it was you know I wouldn't call it a tearjerker uh, but it was it was moving for sure no and you're, and you're right looking just, I'm just looking at that page right now which is page 11 
11 on digital like the face that she makes when she when she sees it and she realizes it it's a memory of her son it's so heartbreaking right there so you're right they really did a really good job of conveying the emotion throughout everything on that as in before the battle scenes are laced with great bits of humor either with the talk of james horses being for the lack of a better term a horse's ass or brunhilde asking why danny is wearing the holy threads of yuyomja as a bracelet i found this in particularly important to balance the heaviness of the scenes with jane and the other dead um as well as to point out that even in our darkest hour we need humor to guide us back to the light was there any of the jokes or the humor and this issue that really stood out to you i just really like jane's uh connection with mr horse (laughs) 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 and how she just keeps she just keeps throwing out these kind of negative descriptions of him (laughs) (laughs) but you know that she's happy to see him anyway right like you can tell she loves him yeah he's a horse's ass (laughs) i suppose that's me Uh, (laughs) i i yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think all of the scenes with her horse were the comedic goal for me. In some ways, the way that the Valkyrie's speech is written makes me feel like some of the jokes, like as far as some of the jokes landing, it feels a little bit like I'm watching a sitcom in a foreign language. Oh. Like I know where the beats are. You know what I know? Like I know where it's funny. I just, uh, in in some way, I'm just like, and maybe that's why I never gravitated to like the Thor mythos. Um, because just that that old English just goes goes up me sideways. <laughs> hey everybody, quick Nico break in, and it just it wouldn't be an episode of Exit for Podcast if I didn't find a place to shove something like this in. One of the most fascinating things about the Thor mythos is exactly what these guys are talking about right now. The way the speech is phrased, there's something about the fact that Stan Lee in the 1960s assumed that ancient Norsemen would talk in some sort of Shakespearean Middle English? Yeah, because it's not Old English. Old English is just completely unrecognizable to the modern ear. This is some sort of Shakespearean Middle English that Stan Lee, I guess, just thought stood in for all things Norse? Now, I myself recently completed a Jason Aaron's Thor reread from the first pages of his God of Thunder through the last pages of his King Thor. I can't recommend it enough. If you're an X-Men fan, there's plenty of surprises in there like the Shi'ar, Quentin Quire, and yes, my precious Phoenix. Now, if you're just a fan of Thor from what you've heard here, you also might like it a lot, so I do recommend checking out the complete Thor works by Jason Aaron that can be found in Thor, God of Thunder, Thor, Thors, The Mighty Thor, The Unworthy Thor, The Tie-Ins, original sin and secret wars are really helpful during those eras following the end of the mighty thor once the odinson is back in the title you can find him over in the pages of once again just called thor this time with mike del mundo on art real brilliant artist does an incredible job the previous runs saw a slew of incredible artists from ron garney to the unforgettable russell dowderman before finding itself wrapping up in the pages of War of the Realms, as well as a limited series, King Thor, which finished out all of the threads that Aaron had started. So if you did like this, I do recommend going back and reading a ton more. You can then segue over to that Valkyrie book that Nathan mentioned. So thanks for this little break in, guys, and I hope you guys keep enjoying the Middle English goodness that is Thor. No, I hear you. It's like going to a Shakespearean play and people are like, oh, that was funny. And you're like, what the hell did he even say? (laughs) It's so funny. I, I, because I was a, a theater kid um and you have to say it that way under penalty of death um like i love shakespeare i don't love valkyrie speech i they're close you know 
One is like iambic pentameter, and one is, and I I feel like that's 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 a little bit it for me. You know, there are there are moments where where their speech is is absolutely poetry, and then there are others where you know it's it's menacing. In you know, you're a spineless excuse for a deity. You and Null both, and today's the day you start rotting in hell. You know, like that's a little bit more normalized. You know, like so finding a balance in that case would be you know perfect for me. But I suppose. I'll have all of the mighty Valkyries to uh, to nestle into that sweet spot. Yes! Looking forward to that. Through an epic battle, the Valkyries complete the ritual and set a decisive blow to the Dom Yardadi Knoll and his severous connection with the Realm of the Dead. This really did surprise me that such an important moment in King and Black was in this miniseries because they didn't really market it as such an important miniseries. Do you think this was hyped enough as a miniseries to have such a decisive plot point to Places. No, I'll be honest. I really, I really don't think that this book got enough hype, and it's surprising to me because it's we're we're seeing, if nothing else, you you think of the cross marketability between the characters that become increasingly more popular in the books and the you know convergence on their appearance in you know film or television properties. Valkyrie being the standout character in Thor Ragnarok, the Valkyries being introduced in the MCU you would think that there would have been a bigger draw to this book, especially with a name like Jason Aaron writing. I definitely did not. From from the jump, I had a feeling this book was not getting the attention that it deserved. And so in that way, yeah, to know that they, they dealt this incredible blow to Null, that they dampened his power in such an incredible way. In this four-issue miniseries, I definitely was not expecting Return of the Valkyries to be required reading. I don't really even remember seeing anything come up on on like twitter or anything regarding this miniseries but yeah it's it's very surprising that we got to witness such a blow to Null's strength through here and not in the uh the main story but at the same time it does look like our three valkyries are going to be returning to um midgard in order to complete the battle so it's i i don't know it's i kind of wish that that we had seen more marketing on this book oh no no i agree because it, it kind of just they were just kind of like eh, we're gonna throw this out it's it's a mini series connected but like it's it seems to be so important to the conclusion of the arc. Uh, I was just kind of like bored when I saw that. I was like, oh, because when I started out, I really thought there's no way they could succeed in this miniseries because, you know, that would be such a big blow. But like they did like and I'm like, whoa. So with the Celestial defeated, it's time for the dead to return to their proper places. Jane has to say goodbye to the echo of her son, Jimmy, and the Valkyrie has to bid farewell to the echo of her wife, I'm assuming, Alta, both having bonding moment over their shared losses the century is also sent on his way back to valhalla where he was supposed to be going in the first place did this scene create a good reason for jane and the valkyrie to continue their association which we're pretty sure they're going to do based on the valkyrie's mini not miniseries the valkyrie series is coming up mm, i <sighs> 
I really don't know. Um, I, th- I think that Jane and the Nameless Valkyrie were just spent too much time apart from each other to actually build that connection that would really improve the bond that they need for this. Danny and Jane through this series would be a better set of companions to each other. Oh, I'm all for that. I agree. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't help but agree. But then I also wonder if I find myself wondering more if Danny is going to make a continued appearance in the upcoming Valkyrie series than I am if if Jane and the unnamed Valkyrie are going to be you know continue to uh, pair up. And and to Kyle's credit, I would say that that is you know due to them not having spent enough time together to forge that that relationship. Although the sisterhood of the Valkyries is such that it transcends like close personal relationship, and they are they are parts of a unit they're parts of a whole but that said i i don't see them you know really hitting it off you know i will say that i'm not sure that we will see danny continue with the valkyries unfortunately because they did say that the only reason that she took on her valkyrie form was because in the uh the space between worlds that pretty much encompasses the past present and future so in that space she is a Valkyrie, but back on Midgard she's not. They could always have it segue from the ritual they completed, right? It's comic books. It was comic book magic everywhere, right? That's so. true. In the end, it was kind of Danny Moonstar who really seemed to rally the heroes for their return to the battle for Midgard. I did kind of find it weird that she called Earth Midgard because I almost like expect her to be like, hey, we're going back to Earth, and they'd be like, Midgard. So they go back to Earth to hopefully finish off the silly string, silly string stain that is Null. Was it odd to either of you that Danny Moonstar was the one that was kind of like the rallying force? Because I almost would have expected that to be Jane if she was going back because she's like the like de facto leader of the Valkyries now, right? Jane was still dealing with the the results of having to let her son go again. So I, I can understand her not being in a place where she would be up for rallying the troops. Danny is technically not really a Valkyrie at this point. So I don't know. It, it's it's kind of like she's taking on that leadership role that she has been developing again in New Mutants. And I like that. But I don't know. It it kind of felt a little out of place in this book. Yeah. I feel like I, I went around in circles yeah. there. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I don't think I could say I'm surprised that it was Danny who rallied them together in the end, because if for no other reason, I think that that was a great utilization of a character with a strong namesake, you know, and strong, you know, recognizability. It wouldn't have emotionally, you know, resonated the same way if it was the unnamed Valkyrie who was like, okay, come on, let's, you know, I I feel like in that, in that case, it had to come from Danny. See, like, kind of... In that vein, like I'd, I'd love to see, I've, I've kind of gone on the bandwagon where I'd love to see Danny Moonstar become more of a central main Marvel character. She's one of the more recognizable, you know, indigenous people in a Marvel comic. It would be great for her to have an expanded role and for her to go go the Asgardian of Valkyrie route would give her a lot more ties with the general Marvel universe of 
personally and just saying this off the top of my head so if i say something wrong i'm like just i was surprised with how closely they all bonded in new danny i know she spent time in asgard in between the end of the new mutants run before she came back in x-force as moonstar and we haven't really seen much of that time but i was surprised that like brunhilde and all of those guys knew her as well as they did and they're like oh hey it's danny moonstar I haven't seen you in forever like that was very different to me and it and it connotes a, more of a connection than i thought that she had with the valkyries whereas i always thought she was kind of like oh hey you're like an accidental valkyrie but like they seem to more accept her under her their sisterhood what are your guys's thoughts on that sense of danny moonstar being more segueing more into the valkyrie series maybe hopefully potentially than in the x-men titles Mm. I I like the idea of it. I, I still would rather her be like a main X-Men uh, character. But if that doesn't happen, I would be all about her regaining her, her Valkyrie powers permanently. Uh, I think her in her Valkyrie outfit is absolutely majestic. She looks like a goddess. Uh, agreed. Yeah, I, I like her in both situations. <laughs> That's the uh. Thing. <laughs> hey, if Logan can be in like 80 books, Danny Moonstar can be in two. That's <laughs> true. This is very true. Maddie, would you like to see Danny Moonstar be a little bit more of a Marvel mainstay instead of an X Men mainstay by maybe joining the Book of the Valkyries? No, I hate her. I hate you for asking. <laughs> oh, wow. no, no. I, listen, some, yeah. people, some, people, some people just wake up and choose violence. Um, hey, I'm glad you chose that today. <laughs> I, of, of all days. No, I feel like she deserves Valkyrie status. You know what I mean? I I feel like she deserves the the not the title but the the responsibility I suppose like she has the moral conviction she yeah. deserves yeah. to be on the elevated pedestal that is being one of the ranks of the Valkyrie I I would happily pay for two books a month with Danny Moonstar in it uh, no questions asked mm-hmm. I I admittedly if I were to continue reading like if you ask me based on these four issues what would make you continue to read the valkyrie ongoing it would be danny moonstar you know for all of the jane moments for all of the unnamed valkyrie moments it was danny for me and part of that is she's an anchor she's someone that i recognize but also i just think that she has an incredible amount of potential and she has a lot to to contribute to that sisterhood definitely oh no i absolutely agree it'd be nice to have another i mean i was gonna say a non-asgardian on the team but that's jane too but it'd be nice to have that more more of the connection with with earth and jane has definitely connections with the avengers side of marvel but it'd be nice to help bring the mutants in the mix especially with well, uh everything especially to bring the mutants in the mix like i definitely agree that you know jane oh. jane more than danny represents the human foil for the valkyries being a non-asgardian being of course for midgard but i i think that and this is a little bit just wanting the reaches of jonathan hickman's so in in my heart of heart in in my dream of dreams i would have jonathan hickman's house and powers era of x-men extend its reach so far into the marvel universe that it just can't be unwritten for like years <laughs> and so we're getting mutants in space hell yeah mutants on the high seas hell yeah mutants in government you know in in international diplomacy hell yeah so give me a mutant in the valkyries give me a mutant on one of the other planes you know put mutants everywhere at this point now that you, you we have the united front of mutantdom yeah 
no, I want them to extend into every region of Marvel. No, yes. that makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. Especially, like, right now the mutants don't have any representatives on the Avengers team, too, or with that other heroic side of Marvel right now. So everybody's been kind of, like, drawn back into Krakoa. So it would be really nice to see, except for Justice, and he sucks. He's an asshole. I hate Justice. But he's working. He's a police now. But <laughs> Sorry. Um... <laughs> I just I hate Justice so much. Sorry, anytime I think of him. Um, so is there anything in this issue that you would wish you had seen that didn't happen? I know personally, I really wish we had gotten more than like those two small panels of Hildegard. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, with with the last issue being so heavy on Hildegard, just having her kind of slightly break out of Null's um cocoon, I guess. <laughs> uh it, it was kind of a unsatisfying she was just like oh yeah they stand together (laughs) (laughs) it was kind of i was like oh that's all we got yeah um you know i i honestly can't say and it's it's not just to be the 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 himbo of the group just being like oh i thought thought the whole thing was good um (laughs) but i i really don't think that there was anything more that i that i could have hoped for i because i said i i had genuinely no expectation going into it I was maybe expecting a little bit more of a neat tie-up of the involvement in King and Black directly, because I feel like they have now landed the most successful blow against Null in the entirety of the King of Black crossover. So now they're just like, all right, peace, I'm out. We're just going to go do our our own ongoing. Yeah, there's going to be no repercussion for this, you know? I feel like it's unlikely that we are going to see King and Black extend into the mighty Valkyries, but I also think that it's improbable that their actions will not yield a reciprocal response. So in that way, I'm kind of like in, in a little like paradoxical loop. I'm just like, it can't be, but it must be, but it can't be. Uh, so I, I could have I could have done with a little bit of a of a neater bow on the null involvement, but otherwise, hey, great book. Eight out of ten. Um, so Kyle, kind of in the same thing, do you think, so as Maddie said, he probably doesn't think they're showing up. Do you think they're going to show up in the King and Black 5 finale? I do. I, I, I do believe that they're going to uh, show up. They alluded to the fact that while they've fixed the problem with the souls not making it to Valhalla, there were still issues that they needed to to take care of. When the uh, the Nameless Valkyrie asked Danny if she thought that they could uh, if they could beat him, uh, Danny said, I do not know that we can't. And their response was, that means you have hope. And mm-hmm. it, it it sounds like they they are going to be joining the fight. I, I agree, Kyle. I kind of, I really want to see them. I mean, they may not get as much panel time, obviously, as they did in the miniseries, but I, I think they'll at least show up and they'll, they'll ride their horses in and somehow Danny Moonstar will temporarily have her Valkyrie powers that they'll like wipe out afterwards. Um, my very last question before I go to final thoughts would be, was there a character in this miniseries that stood out to you more than others? Like, what breakout character? I know that Nameless Valkyrie was supposed to be the breakout character of this, but I really find myself, like, levitating towards Hildegard. I didn't know as much about her before, and I just absolutely love her. She's just, like, this big, tough, rough ball of, like, adorableness that I, like, want to get to know more. Uh... 
Um, I really don't know the answer to that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess I, I do want to to learn more of the Nameless Valkyrie. I feel like there were enough mysteries that are left unresolved regarding her that I'm I'm still intrigued by her story. You know, it's I don't know that I would I'd say that I want to know more about her, but I will say that I appreciated getting to know more of the comics interpretation of Jane Foster. I think that that was uh, that was a really really nice um unexpected journey uh for for me in reading this because i i only had the the social understanding of natalie portman's jane foster uh which is ultimately fine but just seeing a little bit more of her on panel and getting to know the comics interpretation just sort of helped like the symmetry in my brain just sort of put that to rest and be like okay like now i know both of you now you can like be put to rest you know this miniseries for me was worth it just to see danny moonstar reunited with brightwind and see her in that like you say kyle that goddess like asgardian armor Ooh, worth every penny for me. This this uh, book for me was a pleasant surprise. I mean, I was I was already pretty excited because of the because of Danny's inclusion, and I I think they surpassed everything that I was could have hoped for. So I I'm I'm really happy that I picked up this book. I think that as far as crossovers go, this one was not crossovers as far as crossover tie-ins go. This was about as engaging and unique and innovative as it gets. I think that there were very few expectations of mine that were not met in the beginning. I think it was uh, just enough that I, I let go and just allowed the conclusion to just sort of come in its own time. And, and I think that it was uh, an excellent showing for Jason Aaron. Oh, no, I agree. 